Christmas Eve, 1945. George and Jenny Sauter spent an evening at home with their children, soaking up the moments of Christmas cheer. The children stayed up late to play with toys they had begged to open early. George and Jenny both retired for the evening by 10.30, leaving one of their older children in charge. Around 1 a.m., the family awoke to smoke and flames consuming their home. In a frenzy, the family rushed to safety, but only four of the nine Sauter children made it out of the house alive. The other five were not so lucky. Or were they? I'm Marina. With me, I have my best friend, Laura, and this is Grim. all these cases home invasions fires these are all things i'm terrified of this case is a doozy this one i've gone back and forth on what i think happened it's very bizarre um so this week we're talking about the mysterious case of the solder children i know you've talked about it before but i i actually have no idea what the case is oh really it's been covered by a lot of podcasts so Mm -hmm. i'm excited that you have never heard it before i've only listened to grim oh okay (laughs) exclusively grim (laughs) yep well, before we start talking about the case, we have some Patreon shout outs. My favorite part. Yeah, the best part. First up, we have Katie L. Katie, woo! We love you, Katie. We love you, Katie. Thank you. Second, we have Cassie B. Cassie, woo! Yeah, we love Cassie. you, Cassie. We love you. And last but not least, we have Allison H. Thank Allison, you, Allison. Woo! We love you. We love you. Thank you all. Our love for our gremlins is free, but if you want to buy us a glass of wine, get some bonus episodes, or join our Discord and chat with us on the reg, just go to patreon.com and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. I don't know if you've heard before, but Laura thinks the Discord is pretty cool. So I mean (laughs) fun, I believe, is is my adjective of choice. Is it gruel? It's interesting. (laughs) Gruel. (laughs) (laughs) It's gruel and interesting. Yes. I also wish that and maybe we will eventually take a picture, but I wish that you all could see our setup right now because we're recording at Marina's house instead of Colby's while Colby's on a break. And we didn't really think through our setup of the microphones, but once we set it up, we committed and can't move. But we have the arms of the microphones between both of us. So we're kind of like going up and down trying to see each other's eyes. And it's just really pretty funny. It's pretty special. (laughs) We'll get through though. We shouldn't be left alone. No, we need supervision. (laughs) So for this week's case, I relied mostly on an incredibly well-written article from Karen Abbott in the Smithsonian Magazine titled The Children Who Went Up in Smoke. I then read a variety of online articles to fill in some details. I got some very interesting information (laughs) from interviews done by Stacey Horn for her blog. And I'm not one to usually dive into Reddit, but there was an incredibly detailed post by user Jacob Maddox. And I also listened to Case Files episode on this case because I love his Australian accent. And I love the way that he says the word skeletal (laughs) instead of skeletal. I like that. Uh, Which is almost as much as I love when Bear Girls says crevasse or vitamins. (laughs) Vitamins. I like that one. Uh, love it. Mm -hmm. This mystery involves the Sauter family, and I want to give you a background on them. 
George Sauter was born in Italy in 1895 and immigrated to the U.S. when he was 13 years old. He came to the U.S. with his older brother, but when they got to Ellis Island, his brother immediately turned around to go home, leaving teenage George alone in this new country. Yikes. I don't even like to go to restaurants by myself, <laughs> so I give him credit for braving a new country on his own. I'll say. George found work bringing water and supplies to laborers working on the Pennsylvania railroads, but decided to move to West Virginia after a few years. In West Virginia, he worked as a truck driver, but George had big dreams, and he started his own trucking company. One day, George walked into a local store and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani, who had also immigrated to the U.S. from Italy. The rest, as they say, is history. I'm really surprised you didn't sing West Virginia. West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Because I did in my head, but (laughs) I leave the singing to you. Mountain mama. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Take me home. Okay, so the couple got married and had 10 children over the course of 20 years from 1923 to 1943. Uh, That's way too many children, and God bless Jenny because they must have walked out after the third or fourth. Seriously. The voluminous Sodder family made Fayetteville, West Virginia their home, and they were a well-respected middle-class family within the community that was made up of many Italian immigrants like themselves. On Christmas Eve, 1945, George and Jenny were home with nine of their 10 children, including three-year-old Sylvia, five-year-old Betty, eight-year-old Jenny, nine-year-old Louis, 12-year-old Martha, 14-year-old Maurice, 16-year-old George Jr., 17-year-old Marion, and 23-year-old John. That's quite an age range. I was not counting. Was that all of them? That was nine. Okay. (laughs) The 21-year-old son, Joe, was not home as he was away serving in the army at the time. Marion had finished her shift at the dollar store that evening, and she came home with presents for all of the children. The brood of Sodder children convinced their parents to let them open a few presents early, and they enjoyed the time together as a family. George Jr. and John were tired from helping their father with work and went to bed in the attic, which was split in two to serve as bedrooms for the many children. George also went to bed, and then Jenny followed shortly thereafter, around 10.30, bringing their three-year-old to her crib in their room. And I was stuck on the number of children. What uh, time of the year is this? Christmas Eve. It was. Okay. Yes. I, I was distracted by the number of people and then I was trying to remember back so that I didn't ask about what year it was. And I was trying to remember back to that and in that time got distracted <laughs> on what time of the year it was. Guys, it's really hard to listen. Marina has her notes. I'm just here staring at her through the arm of the microphone and I'm trying to remember all the facts. When they were sitting down opening Christmas presents, it happened to be Christmas Eve. Well, you know, I was thinking, wow, that's really nice. She just brings home gifts after her shift is what I thought. No. No. Okay. So you're good now. You're good? I'm good. I'm up to speed. (laughs) She left Marion in charge of the other children and agreed to let them stay up as long as they did their chores before going to bed, which included feeding the chickens and bringing the cows in. They promised, as children do, to get what they want and continue to play with their new toys while Marion relaxed on the couch. Around 12.30, the phone in George's study rang and woke up Jenny, who answered it. A female voice she didn't recognize asked to speak to a man that Jenny didn't know. She could hear laughter and glasses clinking in the background like the woman was at a party. Jenny told the woman that she had the wrong number. The woman laughed strangely and then hung up. Mm -mm. On the way back to her bedroom, Jenny noticed that Marion was asleep on the sofa in the living room and that the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains open, and the front door unlocked, which were things the children usually took care of before they went to bed. Jenny shut the lights off, closed the curtains, locked the door, and went back to bed, assuming her other children were asleep upstairs. Jenny was just starting to fall asleep when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof, 
and then what she described as a rolling noise. She stopped and listened, but not hearing anything else, she assumed it was just Santa and his reindeer and fell back asleep. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so wholesome. But I'm thinking like Molotov cocktail is what I'm currently thinking. That's probably what it was. She, oh. There was no research to indicate she did think it was Santa, but that was, oh. you know, <laughs> Christmas Eve. It's the mother yeah. that heard the noise. Okay. So that's yeah. very nice. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's an interesting report that they had. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, around 1 a.m., Jenny woke to the smell of smoke, and she found that George's study was on fire. She woke up George, who woke up Marion sleeping on the sofa. Marion took Sylvia outside to safety, while Jenny went to yell upstairs for her children to evacuate as the fire rapidly spread. George Jr. and John had been able to escape the upstairs bedrooms, but the fire was already so intense that they singed their hair on the way down the stairs. Meanwhile, George tried to call the fire department, but the phone was dead. George remained in the home as long as he could to ensure everyone was out, but was forced to leave when the smoke and flames became too much. Mm. George got outside and took frantic inventory of his family. Only four of the nine children made it out of the house, meaning that five-year-old Betty, eight-year-old Jenny, nine-year-old Louis, 12-year-old Martha, and 14-year-old Maurice were still inside. Oh, I can't imagine that horror. George and Jenny feared that they were all cowered upstairs, trapped in the bedrooms, unable to escape down the stairs that were engulfed in flames. George knew he had to save them, so he broke a window on the bottom floor to try to re-enter the home. He cut his arm in the process, and he couldn't see anything downstairs due to the fire that had consumed the entire bottom floor. He figured his best bet would be to enter through an upstairs window with the ladder that he always kept propped against the house. When he ran to the ladder, he found that it was missing. George frantically looked for other solutions and had the idea to drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house so that he could climb on top and reach the upstairs windows. But neither of them would start, even though they had been perfectly functional the day prior. Running out of ideas, George wondered if he could put some of the fire out with some nearby water. He tried scooping it from a rain barrel, but it was frozen solid. Mm. While George was running around trying to find a way back into the house, Marion ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department but the operator never responded. Another neighbor saw the fire and also tried to call for help, but no one answered there either. Trying to save what they could of the home, a frustrated neighbor drove into town and found the fire chief, F.J. Morris, who initiated the phone tree system that the fire department had in lieu of a fire alarm. Oh. The fire chief couldn't operate the fire truck on his own, so he had to wait for help. Oh, jeez. The fire department was also incredibly understaffed, as many of the volunteers had yet to return home from war. Believe it or not, the phone tree was incredibly inefficient. Oh, that's and, shocking. <laughs> and despite the fact that the fire department was only two and a half miles away from the solder home, it took them about seven hours to gather the firemen and get to the house, which was nothing but ashes by that I was going to say, honestly, what's the point then? Right. There's just, yep, that was a fire. <laughs> The house had completely burned to the ground by 2 a.m., so I'm not sure the fire department could have done much had they been efficient, but still, can yeah. you imagine standing in your yard watching your home burn mm. to ash for an hour and then stand there for another five hours Seriously. waiting for the fire department? With presumably your children inside would be the worst part, yes. but I'm, I'm guessing it was probably a wooden house. It probably went up like matchsticks. Yes. You know? Yep. Um, but I mean, seriously, the fire department could have walked there faster with buckets yeah. of water. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> On Christmas day, the fire department finally arrived around 8 a.m. 
Uh, Their only role now really was to investigate. Mm -hmm. But even if they had gotten there sooner, they didn't have any breathing apparatuses like we have today. Mm -hmm. So even if they'd gotten there, they wouldn't have been able to go inside the house for a search and rescue. Wow. What a scary time that must have been because of all of those factors. And then also, you know, electricity wasn't as reliable as it is now. And everything I think was like slightly more dangerous. (laughs) So that's awful. Right, where things are more likely to burst into flames, exactly. but the firefighting is not as advanced as it was today. Bingo. Yes. Yep. That's a valid point, yes. Mm. George was treated at the local hospital for the lacerations on his arm from trying to break the window, but everyone else that had gotten out of the house was okay. Fire marshals and local police combed through the ashes for an hour or two, searching for the remains of the dead bodies of the five missing solder children, but they found no trace of them. Hmm. So it took them seven hours to get there. They kicked around some ash for an hour or two and were like, well, our work here is done. Helpful. Helpful. Thank you for your service. The fire chief suggested that the fire had been so hot that the bodies may have been completely cremated, which seems a little bit far-fetched, especially considering that there were remnants of the family's appliances in the basement. The Fayetteville County prosecutor announced that there would be an investigation into the children's deaths. A coroner's jury concluded that the fire was likely caused by faulty wiring Hmm near George's study in the back of the house that was accelerated by strong winds that evening. On December 30th, the coroner's office issued five death certificates for the children, their cause of death listed as death by suffocation or fire, which completely destroyed the home in which they were sleeping. The prosecutor told the family that they would conduct a more thorough investigation, but after the holidays. Priorities. Really? And I mean, I don't even know what else they could do. I'm sure there was more to do, but... It doesn't seem they had the tools for it. Right. George and Jenny wanted to turn the site of the home into a memorial, and the police told them to wait so that they could investigate more, but they didn't want to. Maybe they didn't trust that anybody was coming back at that point. George got a bulldozer and put five feet of dirt over the basement, and the Sauter family planted flowers and established a memorial at the site of their former home. They built another home on a different area of the property, so they were always close by to visit and tend to the garden. Wow. But while the Sodders should have been mourning for the loss of their children, their grief was clouded by confusion and then anger. They began to feel that the fire was not an accident, and they wondered whether their children were actually dead. At the forefront for Jenny was the fact that there was not a shred of evidence that her children's bodies were in the ashes of the home. Jenny decided to conduct her own experiments to demonstrate that her children's bodies and their bones couldn't have been rendered to ash by the house fire. She burned various animal bones, including chicken bones, beef joints, and pork chop bones, basically leftovers from dinner, Fair. to see if anything was left. Every time, she was left with a pile of charred bones, just as she expected. Jenny reached out to an employee at a local crematorium as well, and that person informed her that human bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. That's what I was going to say, because I doubt the fire that she was building was enough to, like it probably wasn't even as hot as the house fire, Right. but that was smart to reach out to the cremator. Right. Yeah, because I always, I, when I was younger, I guess, thought that when you get cremated, you are completely turned to ash. And then I learned that the ashes are basically the ground up remnants. I also thought that when I was younger, not definitely not tonight, right before that sentence. <laughs> yep. Nope. Definitely. Things you learned today <laughs> yeah. when you were today years old. Yep. <laughs> so the standard house fire typically burns around 1500 degrees. 
and the solder home had burned to the ground in just 45 minutes. So doing that math, there's almost no way that there would be nothing left of five bodies at that rate right. and temperature. And they're not that, I mean, they're small in that it's heartbreaking that they, if at the thought of them dying, but they're not that small that you wouldn't find bones and right. everything. I mean, a 14 year old. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. In addition to the lack of bones, no one ever heard the children screaming. No one ever saw them trying to escape from the windows upstairs. And no one reported smelling burning flesh either before or after the fire, which is horrifying to even think about. But mm -hmm. I've heard how bad that can smell. Um, so it's strange that scent wouldn't be reported or lingering at the scene. Yeah. And I, I think it sounded like George was running around the house trying to get in. So he would have seen and heard things and smelled things. Right. So you would think anyways. Mm -hmm. Exactly. George and Jenny began trying to piece together the events leading up to the fire, trying to recall anything unusual, looking for any helpful clues. And they actually did think of a few oddities. They recalled that a few months earlier, a man had appeared at their home asking about whether George had any hauling work available. The man roamed to the back of the solder home and pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. <laughs> With no further explanation, the man just walked away. Except that we, I at least am hypothesizing that that is not how the fire started. So that could have just been a strange coincidence. Yeah, it's hard to say. George thought the comment especially strange at the time as he had just recently had the wires checked by a local power company after he had a new stove installed. Hmm. Strangely enough, also around that same time, a man came to the Sauter home trying to sell the family life insurance. <laughs> this man's name was Armstead Rosser Long, and he was the president of Rosser Long Insurance Company. George declined, and Long was pissed. Side note, had the family bought the life insurance and there was any fraud, the life insurance company would have stepped in and solved this case in one month. Absolutely. I was going <laughs> to say, of course, we have to talk about an insurance company. <laughs> right. He told George, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Sounds like an incredibly aggressive sales tactic to yeah. me. The man's anger was obviously targeted towards George George's political beliefs, uh, which were very well known in the community. George was outspoken about his beliefs concerning the Italian dictator, which led to heated arguments in the Italian immigrant community in their small town. Hmm. But George didn't think the threats or arguments were ever serious enough to worry about his or his family's safety. In addition to George and Jenny's recollections, the older sons also recalled a man parked on the highway near there who had been focused on the younger Sodder children as they came home from school just before Christmas. Mm -mm. Don't like that. Do not like that. And that wasn't it. A telephone repairman came out and informed the Sodders that their phone lines appeared to be cut, not burned. As luck would have it, they ended up finding the man who had cut the phone wires. On the night of the fire, but before it was set, a man had been spotted stealing a block and tackle from George's shed, which is one of the items George would use to work on his trucks. The man was identified as Lonnie Johnson, and he admitted to cutting the electricity to the Sodders' home, but denied stealing the block and tackle, which is weird as shit to confess yeah. to something that you're not even being accused of. Right. But the electricity wasn't off and the electrical wires weren't cut. I was just going to ask. I was waiting to see what you said, but I was thinking he cut the phone line unless he thought he was cutting electricity. Exactly. Although that's also dumb because that would probably have hurt him, I would think. Possibly. I mean, unless he had the right tools, I right. guess. Back then. Yeah. The state inspector had said the fire was caused by faulty electrical wiring. But the Sodders never believed that because if that were true, the power to the house would have been dead when the fire started. 
but the lights were on downstairs when the fire was burning. And Jenny was certain of that because she said that if the lights hadn't been on, the family never would have been able to navigate out of the house safely. Which is true, but a faulty wiring, are they assuming the, the wiring like coming into the house as opposed to wiring the walls of the house? Because w- wiring the walls of the house could easily have a fault and that wouldn't take out your entire, all of your electricity. You don't Although, think so? Maybe, maybe back then. Yeah, maybe in 1945. Okay. Like one yeah. circuit. I didn't do my studying on that part, so. One, yeah. one circuit? Yeah, that's <laughs> probably true. Yeah. <laughs> So the most likely scenario, it seems, is that Lonnie cut the phone wire thinking it was the electrical wire, as Laura pointed out. (laughs) Lonnie's bizarre vandalism may have solved another mystery as well. The telephone wires were on a telegraph pole 14 feet in the air. Lonnie may have taken George's ladder from where he usually kept it in order to get to the top of the pole to cut the wire. God damn it, Lonnie. And George's ladder was eventually found about 75 to 80 feet away, thrown down an embankment. But there's no explanation as to why Lonnie would have done any of this or how Lonnie could mistake a telephone wire 14 feet in the air for an electrical wire that was at the back of the Sodder's home. Right. None of it really makes any sense. To add even further to the mystery, after the snow had melted, one day Sylvia was playing over near the memorial garden where the old house had been, and she found a hard green rubber object in the yard about the size of a baseball. George looked it over and concluded that it was a napalm pineapple bomb and had his suspicions confirmed by someone familiar with military items. Yikes. Jenny remembered hearing that thud on the roof and the rolling sound shortly before the fire started, so they wondered if that could have been the cause. Yeah. To make matters even more bizarre, it's just going to keep getting weirder. There was a local bus driver who said that he had seen balls of fire being thrown by a group of people at the Satter House on the night of the fire. Not sure why this person kept that piece of information under their toupee, but it doesn't seem like any further information or investigations came from that lead. Oh, well, that's, I mean, I guess, what would they do even with that information? You know, how would you find anyone? Right. And you were like, what did they look like? Uh, People. Right. They had bodies. They had fire. They had bodies. But I would think a Molotov cocktail. When I think balls of fire, I think Molotov cocktail. Yep. Yep. As the Sodders contemplated all of these bizarre circumstances, their story garnered national attention and they started receiving reports that people had seen their children. One woman said she saw the children in a passing car while the house was still burning. Another woman at a tourist shop 50 miles west of Fayetteville said she saw the children the morning after the fire and served them breakfast. The woman noted there was a car with Florida license plates in the parking lot at the time, which corroborated another report that the children were later seen at a fishing village in Cortez, Florida. A woman at a hotel in South Carolina said she saw four of the five children a week after the fire, accompanied by two Italian couples. Mm. She couldn't remember the exact date, but she said they all checked in around midnight and stayed in a large room with several beds. She said she tried to make small talk with the children, but the men were hostile towards her and prevented her from speaking with them. She said one of the men turned around and began speaking rapidly in Italian, and then the whole group stopped talking to the woman. She said they left early the next morning. Hmm. It's what's what kind of lends credibility to the witnesses that you've mentioned is the fact that they saw the group of children. Mm. Like if it was just one child, I can see how you just really desperately want it to be who you, you know, who is missing. Right. But the fact that it's the group of them, that seems unlikely, although maybe not in the 1940s, but, (laughs) um, 
but it kind of, like I said, lends credibility to those witnesses. True. Cause they're identifying each of the children together mm-hmm. as opposed to just seeing one and just making them in your head look exactly. like that person. Yeah. Yep. So George and Jenny had heard enough to believe that their children had been kidnapped on the night of the fire and that their children were still alive. In an effort to leave no stone unturned, in 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the FBI and received a written reply from J. Edgar Hoover that basically said he'd like to help. Jeez. He said he could only do so if the local authorities agreed because it was a local matter. Laura's making the face (sighs) because she knows that the Fayetteville police and fire departments said, no thanks. I, why? No reason. Wow. And that was the end of it. Oh my God. I thought you meant the end of the case. I was like, I was like, no, no. If you're enjoying Grimm. (laughs) No. George and Jenny wouldn't give up. They hired a PI named CeCe Tinsley. The PI found out that the insurance agent who had threatened George when he refused to buy life insurance, Armstead Rosser Long, was one of the people on the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. Oh. Speaking of sketchy people on the coroner's jury, another man who was on the jury was Fiorenzo Gamble Janitolo. He was Irish. (laughs) (laughs) He was George's former employer who owned a rival trucking company. Fiorenzo's business partner was Cleante Janitolo, Fiorenzo's cousin, and another man who was on the coroner's jury. And I'd like to think, I think it was my Helen Potts episode where we talked about a coroner's jury. Remember? I think that we did, yes. I don't know when that came about, but it was definitely present in the 1880s and now apparently still in the 1940s. I think they also have them in Australia. I think we talked about it with Phoebe Hanschuk. Did we? I believe that we did. Look at that. Indubitably. (laughs) (laughs) So get this. Fiorenzo was a co-signer on a loan to George and was a listed recipient of a $1,500 insurance policy in the mortgage clause on the Sodders property. Here we are with the insurance again. (laughs) Very sketchy. Yeah. Very sketchy. The PI also uncovered the most bizarre story about the fire chief, F.J. Morris. He found a local minister who said that Morris had told him that he'd actually discovered a heart among the ashes when he was combing the scene after the fire. Naturally, Morris said he put it inside of a dynamite box and buried it at the scene of the fire. Okay, but you find a heart, an organ, and not bones. And what was he going to do with five bodies worth of bones? put him in a dynamite box and bury him. Apparently. The PI convinced Morris to show him where he had buried the heart and they dug it up and brought it to a funeral director who determined that the contents of the box was actually a beef liver Uh that had been untouched by fire. Yeah, I'm not surprised. The fire chief had buried the liver with the hopes that finding the remains would placate the family enough to stop their investigation into the matter. That's sketchy. That's a long way to go to to get them to stop investigating. Right. So were the police and the fire department on the take? Right. Were they trying to cover up their blundering mistakes? Mm -hmm. Were they trying to provide closure to the family? That would be nice. There's so many questions. I know. Well, it makes you wonder if it really did take that long to get all the fire engines and the volunteer uh, firefighters to the house. Although we said it didn't matter, but who knows? Exactly. Hmm. And they did wonder that. In August 1949, four years after the fire, the Sodders hired a pathologist from Washington, D.C. named Oscar Hunter to excavate the site of the fire. Unlike the police and fire department, Hunter was thorough and really searched the area. Hunter found damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae, 
He sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued a report. The report stated that the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses were fused, the age of that individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old. The top limit of age would be about 22 since the centra, which normally fused at 23, was still unfused. On that basis, the bones showed greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, which right. was the oldest missing solder child. How, do, how does he say it in, with an Australian S- accent? Skeletal. Skeletal. The skeletal remains. Oh, so not... Oh, so where did it come from? It's <laughs> a great question. It's however possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show maturation of a 16 to 17 year old. Mm, Okay. In addition to the aging issue, the vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to fire. And the report noted, it's very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house. Right. Noting that the house burned for less than an hour, the report concluded that one would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. Yeah. The report ultimately concluded that the bones must have been in the loose dirt that George has had obtained to fill the basement for the memorial oh. garden. Oh, so there's just they just had accidentally dug up part of another body. Yes. Oh, oh. And that body was never identified. Oh dear. So if it didn't belong to the Sodder children, who did they belong to? Right. And I mean, who knows how old it was? It could have been, I don't know, a very, very, a hundred years old. Who knows? What are the odds of that? Yeah. I don't know. Indian burying, burial ground. Oh. Maybe high. They're probably haunted now. I, I would say they're pretty haunted. I don't think that's, Already? A, I don't think that's a revelation. <laughs> Already. <laughs> The Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which the governor and state police superintendent declared the search hopeless and closed the case. But again, George and Jenny refused to give up. They put up a billboard on their property and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children and later increased the amount to $10,000, which... That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And I was actually wondering where they had the money, even from the very start when they they just built their other house. And then now they've been doing all this investigation and hiring people. I was just wondering, maybe it's the, maybe they were supported by the town or something. But Well, and George owned a trucking company. Okay, I guess he's got. So he probably made, he probably made pretty good money. You're right. That's a huge reward. Yeah. They maintained the billboard for years and updated the message every now and then. At one point, the billboard said, On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law officers involved? That was the what the billboard said? Yes. Uh, it's a good thing that cars were slower back then because <laughs> that's really long. I'm not even done. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I will post a picture of the billboard. Goodness. I will post a picture of the billboard on the Instagram, but it's very small. Font. <laughs> I'm saying good thing they were going slow. So as I was saying... What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? What did they, why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? So goodness, lots of words. Yeah. Thankfully it was on their property. So they didn't have to pay by the word. (laughs) True. True. (laughs) 
Even as the years passed, the family never gave up hope of finding their children. George and Jenny looked for the faces of their children in everyone who crossed their path. On one occasion, George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was certain one of them was Betty. Mm. He drove all the way to Manhattan, but the parents ultimately refused to speak to him. The family also continued to receive tips and sightings from other people. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. Another tip came from Texas where a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's. George investigated every lead traveling the country to investigate, to no avail. Poor guy. There were many people, including the authorities, who felt that there was enough information to suggest that the children died in the fire. Authorities said they had found some organs and bone fragments on Christmas morning, but the Sodders vehemently denied ever being told anything about that. And even if you found bone fragments, where are the rest of the bones? Right. There's no reason that there would have only been bone fragments. Maybe it was the beef liver. Yeah, really? <laughs> Some have pointed out that the skeletal remains couldn't have burned in 45 minutes, as you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But someone else pointed out that the house didn't burn for 45 minutes. It burnt to the ground in 45 minutes. What was left of the house burned all night and into the morning. When the fire department got there at 8 a.m., the ground was still hot and had to be cooled with water before they could search. Okay, that's a fair point. Still, I thought we just talked about how in the crematorium, the bones, even at 2000 degrees over a few hours are not, you know, they don't disappear. So, right. But what about over seven hours? What about, yeah, Yeah. 1500 degrees at, I don't know, seven hours. Got any bones I can do an experiment on? (laughs) Bones. Got any bones? Bones in a, what are those? Can we borrow your creaky bones? I need H.H. Holmes crematorium. (laughs) What is that thing called? Incinerator. What is the incinerator? Is that the word? What Cre- did he build? Cremator? Cremator? Yes. Yeah. Cremator? I barely know her. <laughs> <laughs> that one got you. Good. 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 I don't know. <laughs> I think it's because my one of my favorite jokes is liquor. I hardly know her. <sighs> Some admit that because it was Christmas, the search was incredibly truncated. The crew spent two hours looking, and today, searchers spend days to sometimes weeks looking for remains. I do believe that, too. Yeah. And John, the eldest son, allegedly told police initially that he had either tried to wake up the missing children, who said that they were awake when the fire started, or he said he yelled to them and heard them yell back. I saw Mm. it both ways. Mm. But the Sodders are adamant that John made this up out of guilt for running down the stairs without doing more for his siblings. I could see that too. Yep. By 1968, George and Jenny had spent more than $15,000 investigating their children's disappearance. That's so much back then. Yes. That same year, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties. On its flip side was a cryptic handwritten note that read, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, ill-ill boys, A9-0132 or 35. The man in the photo looked like Louis with dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, a straight nose, and an upward tilt of his left eyebrow. 
The Sodders hired a PI to investigate and sent him to Kentucky, paying him up front for his services. And they never saw him again. Oh, I knew it. He either took off with their money or something sinister happened to him as well. Mm. The Sodders didn't want to give out information about Lewis's potential location for fear of harming him. So they added an updated photo of him to the billboard and hung his picture over their fireplace. Heartbreaking. In an interview, George said, time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Yeah. He died a year later in 1969, age 73. Oh, that's awful. After George's death, Jenny became more reclusive. She built a fence around the property and started adding rooms to her home, trying to put as much space between her and the outside world as possible. From the day of the fire until she died, Jenny wore black exclusively as a sign of mourning. But she always held out hope. After George's death, she told a local newspaper, you can't tell me my five children could burn up in a little old house like that and something wouldn't be left. No, I'll never believe that. Somebody stole them. That's what. It's been a long time, but maybe I'll be lucky enough to see them someday. Maybe somebody will drive by and see the billboard. You never know. Jenny died in 1989 at the age of 85. Awful that they both went to their graves not knowing anymore. And that's all they wanted. I think they would have been willing to accept that their children died. And Mm -hmm. I think they sort of mourned their loss along Mm -hmm. the way, but they just never believed it. And all the sketchy things, all the weird coincidences, just they couldn't accept that it was all that, just coincidences. Yeah. Yeah. And although I know that's possible, really almost anything is possible. I'm with them that I I think that those children didn't die in the fire. It's all very bizarre. Following her death, Jenny's children and grandchildren took down the billboard that George and Jenny had maintained for all of those years. The family had theories of their own, including that the local mafia had been involved. They thought that maybe they had attempted to recruit George and he refused, or they were trying to extort him for money. They also thought that someone may have taken them when the fire started, telling them that they would bring them to safety. There were also theories that they'd been brought back to Italy, which would make sense. Also, we've, at least I've been making the assumption that they were, if they were kidnapped, it happened right around the time of the fire. But I think I remember Jenny saying that she saw one of the kids asleep on the couch and assumed the other children were upstairs asleep. Right. We didn't even, unless you're going to talk about it later, we didn't even talk about the fact that the door had been unlocked. You would certainly think that if it were some stranger coming in that they would have made noise. But what if it wasn't? What if it was someone that they knew that came over and took the children and then for some reason left one of them and disappeared with them? That's still possible. So it could have all happened prior to the fire even being set and that that was the distraction. I think the most likely scenario, if the children did not die in the fire, Mm -hmm. just to sort of jump to the end on our theories, I have like another small snippet, but Mm -hmm. what if the children went outside to do their chores around the time that the fire started or that's when somebody threw whatever Mm -hmm. that napalm bomb was and they basically told the children, we'll bring you to safety and... Because the woman who saw them at the hotel saw them with two Italian couples. It was an Italian community. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was in revenge against George for his views against Mussolini. Maybe it was something 
you know, that had to do with the mafia. Who, who knows what the reason was why they took the kids. Yeah. But if they took them to Italy, it would make sense why they never reached back out to them. Yeah. I mean, but then again, why would there be a picture of Lewis? I will post the side by side of yeah. the, the picture of okay. Lewis. That cryptic note made no sense. So there is no brother Frankie. There was no yeah. child named Frankie. So I I'm glad you said that because I forgot all of the names of all all of them. And you didn't want to ask? <laughs> no. Them. You didn't memorize them? No. Because there's a quiz. Uh, if you're enjoying Grimm. <laughs> so the youngest and last surviving Satter child was Sylvia. And she passed away in April 2021. She didn't believe that her siblings perished in the fire, and before her death, she would spend time on web sleuth websites to look for any new information or ideas about her siblings' disappearance. Mm. She had said that even though she was only three years old the night of the fire, she could still picture her father's arm covered in blood, and she could still hear him screaming for her siblings. Oh, that just gave me chills. One of the users on Reddit, Jacob Maddox, he theorized that Janitolo may have been behind the fire. He's the one that had the insurance policy, the okay. co-signer on the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So he was one that would directly benefit from the home burning to the ground because True. that $1,500 was about $20,000 right then. Yep. And he'd also benefit from any downfall to Georgia's trucking business because they owned rival trucking companies. Mm-hmm. He noted that maybe Janitolo didn't intend for anyone to die or get hurt in the fire, which is why there was that phone call and the bump on the roof so that everyone was awake when the fire was lit. Okay. There's, there's just so much information. So Jenny thinks that the phone call from that woman Mm-hmm. she thinks that that was a phone call to make sure that they were all home yeah. so that they would burn in the fire. But Ooh. the police apparently found the woman who made the wrong number call and it was genuinely a wrong number. She was a neighbor and she said she just called the wrong number. How did they even find that? That's crazy. I don't know. Do they have, maybe they, I don't trace, think they had caller ID. Maybe, back then. <laughs> maybe they could trace the wires back. Yeah. I wonder if it was literally just asking people, did anyone make a false phone call by accident or something? I don't know. That's, but still that's crazy. When I started researching this, I was a hundred percent certain that the children were kidnapped or taken out mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form, because I w- was really stuck on the bones. Same. Really stuck on the bones. I do find the point interesting that the house burnt to the ground in 45 minutes but that because those embers are hot yeah and they're like it's it's like it's all little incinerator yes yeah yeah and it's compacted Mm. and not just that the bones weren't there it's that they did such a crappy job that they didn't find them true he did later excavate the property fully that that pathologist but at that point george had brought in that other dirt it had been four years i mean who knows right right that yeah I, and what do we always say? The simplest solution often is the case. So I, that would be the logical thing, that it's a tragic, tragic death of those children in the house. Right. Um, geez, I don't know. And but I you're going to tell me the solution, you know, the the resolution, right? There's the no, no, there's no answer. I, know, I, know. Um, I was also going to say that um, in one of the interviews that that um, person did for their blog post, they talked to someone about, you know, some, they mentioned that you couldn't hear the kids screaming. No one right. saw them at the, at the windows. 
And he said, depending on how the fire was and how the smoke was, he said that they go into fire scenes and they find people sleeping dead in their bed. Like the fire never got to them, but they die so quickly from smoke inhalation. So maybe all five children just died from smoke inhalation in their beds. And that's why you wouldn't hear them screaming. You wouldn't see them at the windows and Mm -hmm. the burning flesh. He said that nobody would have been downwind close enough to the Mm. fire. So I I just don't don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I do have one question, though, that I'm not sure if you know, but do we know where the children's bedrooms all were? Like, were all the kids that are missing, were they on, like, the same floor and everybody else was a different floor? Or do you know how the house was set up? Yes. So the attic was split up into two rooms for the children. So I do know that George Jr. and John were up there. And I think the other five missing children were also up in those rooms because Mm. that's seven. And then Marion was asleep on the couch. That's eight. Sylvia was in the crib in George and Jenny's room. That's nine. And then Joe was in the army. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. So they were, so they were all up in the attic and the way to access that was a staircase. George and John got down, but the staircase was already so on fire that their hair was singed. Hmm. And then the other five. Boy, that sure. I mean, if, if we assume that the kids were in the house and that it wasn't the, you know, having been kidnapped prior to the fire starting that we talked about earlier, I, I can see that it was again, just a super tragic that they couldn't get out. Um, if it was that on fire when, when the, uh, John, right. Um, had left, maybe they just, maybe they were afraid to go down. I would be. Yeah, and then died yeah. of smoke inhalation, yeah. and yeah. again, I am stuck on the bones, and know. you know, there are people that say that it's possible, mm. but not probable, but I just, I yeah. don't know if it was burning that long. Like I said, I went into this being absolutely positive, like, I, I think I had written out in my notes, like, I'm positive <laughs> the children were kidnapped, yeah. and then when I started reading some of these interviews and some of these other theories, like, I actually am not, I do think, actually, that the children may mm-hmm. have burned, because mm-hmm. the parents put so much effort into trying to find them like unless the kids were brainwashed to not know that they were their family anymore don't you think they would have said something if they were in italy (laughs) or something crazy yeah and and some people said well maybe they maybe they knew it was their family but they never got in contact with them again for their safety like if it was the italian mafia or someone threatened them but or they were kidnapped and and are have passed away but for more sinister reasons Right, right. And somebody said, too, what if they were stolen and put Mm -hmm. as part of, like, the child slave trade? But there's never been any information to corroborate that. Simple solution, right? I know. Um, Tragic and awful. And you want to believe that they were alive even without their families. But Oh, one other thing I read Mm. that I do not think has been substantiated, but I did read it somewhere, that there may have been coal in the basement, which may have accelerated the fire and made it burn hotter. Huh. Yeah, I mean, all of that's possible, and that's why I hate Unsolved, because we just don't know these things. I know we don't. We just don't know. I'm so sorry. I wasn't going to do an Unsolved, but I just ended up doing it, and uh, here we are, and, and I'm sorry. Are. So yeah. uh, anyways, if you're enjoying listening to Grim, <laughs> please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. And guys, I don't just say this. It literally makes our day. We <laughs> yep. got a new one today, and we screenshot it, and we text it to each other and we talk about Mm -hmm. how happy it makes us and it just makes us so happy (laughs) to make you guys happy so let's make each other happy (laughs) 
<laughs> you can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you can't get enough of Grim, we're actually recording another bonus episode right after this one. So once that releases, we will have four P bonies on our Patreon mm-hmm. for our two highest tiers. So check that out. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Thank you.